On the night of June 5th, General Dwight Eisenhower went out to see off the airborne troops as they were to parachute behind the lines and the D-Day assault. And as planes took off down the runway and went into the air, Kay Summersby, his assistant and driver, noted that tears were rolling down the cheek of General Eisenhower, crying because he knew that he was sending these men to their death. Estimates ahead of time were that 80% of these airborne troops would die. But I wonder, in those moments, if General Eisenhower ever had any idea that he was also sending these men to their life. Because if you followed on TV or in Stephen Ambrose's book or in Major Winner's book about the Band of Brothers, you know that almost to a man when they talk to the survivors from the 101st Airborne that was involved in this attack, they say that in these moments they were never more alive. Never more alive. What brought them to such life? Was it the great challenge that was ahead of them? Perhaps. Was it the great crusade or or the great cause of, of freeing an imprisoned people? Perhaps. But as you talk to them even more, what comes out is this. That one of the things that made them feel so alive were the bonds of community and relationship that they forged with one another. It was not uncommon for these men who were interviewed to say that they were closer to the other men in their troop than they were with anyone else or ever would be man after man would say i am closer to these men than i will ever be to anyone else including my wife or my children there was intense and tight community as they moved forward in the attack of d-day and that community brought them life i share that with you because i think there's a real need for life in the church today For people to look at followers of Christ and see them as alive. I love the illustration that John Eldridge uses. A man comes to a counselor and is trying to decide what vocational path to take with his life. And Eldridge says the counselor gives them this advice. He said, choose to do in life whatever brings you alive the most. Because what we need in life is not more pastors or more surgeons or more architects or more teachers. What we lead in life more than anything else are people who are fully alive. And the church needs people fully alive as well. Alive to Christ, walking the path of Christ. And I believe, I am convinced, that nothing that God does brings us alive and keeps us alive so much as what God does for us in community. The Proverbs would agree. Proverb after proverb talk about the importance of being with other people. And we read one of them this morning that is, iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. There's a power to being together in community that simply cannot be found alone. We've talked about it so many times before that I won't spend a lot of time, but I just want to remind you that community, relationship is what God is all about. That's part of the nature of God. Troy Dunn and I only say half-jokingly that the Trinity was the first small group, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It was part of God's plan. When God surveyed the earth and looked for some place to send Jesus, God had many options in Israel. But one of the contrasts between Judea and Galilee was this. People in Judea lived in 
in Greek-style living, villas, what we might call condominiums, single-family units and dwellings. But in Galilee, entire groups of people, extended family, maybe 175 to 200 people would live under one roof together. God looked at individuality. God looked at community and said, I'd like my son to go there, to go toward community. And when it was time to pick up the work of Jesus, when it was time for Jesus to hand that work off to others, we're told in Luke chapter 10 that he sent them out two by two. He sent them out in community. Community was a part of God's plan. Now, why is this so? I think the answer is real simple. God wants us in community because All of us are better together than we are by ourselves. We are better together than we are by ourselves. If you go down to the thoughts for today and and the um, uh, illustrations uh, in the bulletin, one of the first things you're going to come across is a quote from Ecclesiastes 4. And the summary of it is this, that two are better than one. Because if one falls, the other can pick that person up. That if they're cold, they can uh, get together and be warm. There's a greater return for their work. And then that passage closes with this. And a three-braided cord is not easily broken. Two is wonderful. Even three might be better for strength, for living this life. We just do better together than we do by ourselves. Have you ever tried to lose weight? Come on, you're Americans. We've all tried it. Have you tried it by yourself? Have you tried it with a group holding you accountable? Have you ever tried to train for some event Uh, physically. Try to get your body into shape. Try it by yourself. Or do you try it with a group? Have you ever tried to break the power of a habit or an addiction? Do you try it by yourself and try it with a group? If you had those experiences, I would say that almost across the board, we would all say that we were more successful, whether it was losing weight or or quitting smoking or getting in better shape. We were all more successful when we did it with others. And the Bible is very clear that this is how you pursue the Christian life. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 10. Don't neglect getting together and stirring each other up to good works we can have a profoundly positive effect on one another when we are in community. There are things that we can do in community that we can't do alone. There are things that we can stop doing in community that we can't stop doing on our own power. God's plan for us is to live in community because that's the way God lives and because it's the best way for us to live. Now, With that being the case, I just have two questions for you this morning. The first one is this. Are you in a small community? Are you part of a smaller group of Christians trying to encourage and stir up one another to live the Christian life together? The statistics say that you're probably not. Among worshipers that attend church on a Sunday morning, not not people on a membership role, but people who actually attend church on a Sunday morning, statistics are less than one out of six will be a part of a smaller community helping them to live the Christian faith. And that's unfortunate because it's just too hard to do it alone. What is it that the Holy Spirit will give you to live the Christian life? We can think of lots of things, but without community, all of those things aren't as effective as they could be. Let's just take an obvious one. Well, I read my Bible. I study my Bible by myself every day. Will that do it for me? 
I was reading uh, someone talking about the life of Elvis Presley this past week, and I'd never heard this, that when Elvis was younger, for five consecutive summers, he went to church camp for free. All he had to do to be admitted to church camp for free was memorize 350 Bible verses that year. So five years running, he memorized 350 different Bible verses, which by my math means that he had about 750 Bible verses memorized by the time he finished the five church camps. I ask you, were those biblical texts enough to keep him on the path that God wanted him on in life? Were they enough to help him resist the pull and power that comes with fame? Not Scripture alone. Not prayer alone. God uses these things. But God, through the Holy Spirit, uses them in community. That's where they are used best. More than a decade ago, I read the study of large church pastors who had had some sort of uh, um, um, moral collapse or failure. And when they surveyed and studied them, they found out that these large church pastors had three common denominators, three things uh, they shared. The first one was this. They never thought it would happen to them. They would never fall for that particular temptation. The second thing was this, a little scary to me, is, is what they had in common is they thought they were all working so hard for God that whatever their particular temptation was, they thought God sort of owed it to them. And they justified it that way. But the third one that grabbed my attention was this. None of the pastors in the survey were part of a smaller Christian community, an accountability group. Not a single one of them. This life is just too difficult to live alone. And this life needs to be lived by people who are fully alive. And it happens together. People in the day of Jesus would have known this. Ray Vanderland, talking about the parable of the prodigal son, said that what would have struck the Jewish hearers as the problem uh, or the uh, symptom of the prodigal son's problem was not the spending money on wine and women. The thing that it would have looked most ridiculous to Jewish hearers was this, that he went to the far country, which is just like 10 miles away, it's, it's pagan territory, but he went alone thinking he could still live his faith out there alone by himself. Hearers of the prodigal son parable would have shaken their heads. The minute he left his father, they would have known that nothing but bad was in store for him. You can't do it alone. Charles Miller put it this way a number of years ago. Most of us know the Bible as a message book, teaching us so much about God and God's love for us and life eternal in Jesus. But he said what we don't realize is that the Bible is a method book. That the Bible gives us clues about how to live out the messages and keep the messages of God. And that method is community. So my question is, are you a part of a smaller community? Second question is this. If you are, is your community open to other people? Is your community open to other people? I listened to a message by John Ortberg, a pastor in California some time ago, and he said, if you were to put a sign on the early church... If you just put a sign up on the early church, the sign would not have said no vacancy. The sign would have said everybody's welcome. And he started talking about the kinds of people that were welcomed into the Christian faith in the first few centuries that simply were not welcome anywhere else, beginning with slaves. In the Roman Empire, slaves could acquire education. They could acquire some wealth. 
but what they could never do was mix with their masters and be in the part of groups and community that their masters were in. Unheard of. And yet in the Christian faith, it was common practice for, for Christians who had slaves uh, to invite slaves to their meetings, to uh, invite them into a relationship with Christ. And as we see in Paul's letter to the Philemon, also to free those slaves. And those slaves became equal terms, brothers and sisters with them. They were welcome in a society where normally they weren't welcome. The people who were poor were welcome in the early Christian community. Uh, one uh, governor of the uh, Judea territory writing back to the emperor says this, the amazing thing about Christians is how they take care not only of their own poor, but they take care of our poor as well. They make a place for the poor. And then he goes on to say this, the Christians fast two times a week so that the poor may eat. They gave up their meals so that there would be money to have meals for others. The poor were welcome. The sick were welcome. We talked about this some months ago, that one of the turning points of Christianity in the Roman Empire came long before Constantine made his edict. It came when a plague hit the Roman Empire. And during this plague... The intelligentsia, the aristocracy, the bureaucracy, they all got out of Dodge in a hurry. And Rome was left to the sick and dying and to the Christians for the most part. But historical evidence adds to that this interesting fact. That the Christians who stayed and took care of those who had this plague turned out to be healthier than the Romans who fled to the hills out of town by themselves to preserve their health. Those who stayed in community and nurtured those who were sick were healthier than those who took off by themselves and got as far away from the plague as they could possibly get. There's a wonderful uh, study. I think at least the results are, I think, very interesting from California Berkeley done less than a decade ago. And uh, what it found out in study of people's social uh, patterns and their health it found this interesting correlation, that people who are isolated are three times more likely to die in the next year than people who are not isolated. People in community. Then it went on as, a, as a, another part of the study to look at people who had generally not wonderful health habits. They, they weren't as careful about their diet. They weren't as careful about their cholesterol. They, they didn't look after things as well as we would like them to and need to. And it compared their health to people who were pretty careful about it. But this is what they found. People who generally weren't very careful about their health but lived in community were on the whole healthier than people who looked after their health but lived by themselves and kept to themselves. I love the summary that John Ortberg gives of the study. He said, if you want to summarize it, it's this. It's this. It is healthier and better for you to eat a Twinkie with others than to eat broccoli alone. That's just that. And God knows that. And God puts us in community to be alive and to live the Christian walk and then to put us in position to have others join our community with us. Even before the days of Jesus, it was common practice actually since uh, Abraham's day for people in the desert and then other parts of Israel to build kind of a front room onto their dwelling. And this room was to welcome any strangers and to give them a place to stay for the night, to provide hospitality to them. And as I may have told you when I was in Israel last year, it's still the practice today in that part of the Middle East. 
But one of the interesting things is there was a translation of this room that is translated into English, and it's not very accurate, but they use the word in. And so when Mary and Joseph come to Bethlehem, it's too small a town. There's no Motel 6. All they've got are a few houses that people have where they're going to count on the hospitality of them opening their room, their guest room to them. But what happens? Nobody makes a room. For whatever reason, there are no rooms in those guest rooms, in those inns. Mary and Joseph and soon the baby Jesus looking for a place to be welcomed. And they find none. It's my guess that Mary and Joseph and Jesus still wander this earth in the form of other people looking for places to be welcomed. Let's not make Bethlehem's mistake again.